Good morning. So my name's Rich. Uh, just want to say once again how much of a privilege it is to be here. Uh, very encouraged by all the ways I see the Lord at work in this church. So thanks for having us. We're still um, walking around in a confused blur, just working out uh, our left from right here in Manchester, but uh, hopefully we'll get there soon. Uh, I just want to make one apology to you uh, up front, and that is that I recognise that the British are civilised people and well-mannered people, and uh, I'm an Australian, and uh, so I want to apologise for the host of cultural errors I'm going to make and for my bad manners, and if you're offended, please tell me, and you need to help me to learn how to be well-mannered and polite. So I'm giving you a licence to come and tell me, and I'd appreciate your grace. Now... I've been given the opportunity here to preach for um, three weeks on, Mike said, whatever you want, whatever's close to your heart. So something that reflects what I'm passionate about. Now that's exciting and it's also scary because if I preach on something that I'm passionate about and it doesn't go well, then it's all downhill from there. But I'll tell you what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about us knowing the treasure we have in Christ, us knowing the treasure we have in Christ and the difference it makes when we do. Here in uh, England, somewhere, I don't know exactly where, but in 2010, a British mother and son were clearing out an attic in the house of a deceased relative. And they found an interesting vase. Just put this up on the screen, this vase with a, with a fish on it. And they didn't know what it was doing there, and they eventually had it valued, and it was auctioned and sold. And... The price of this vase, 40 million pounds has been sold for. Now, it's the most expensive piece of porcelain ever sold. It's called the Qinglong vase, and they think it was... They're still trying to trace the history of this vase, how it ended up in this guy's attic. It, uh, they, they think it was looted from the Chinese summer palace in about 1860. But there it is. Now, it's amazing to think that this guy who owned this vase lived and died without knowing the treasure that he possessed. And I think it's the same, the sobering reality is it's the same easily with us, is that we can, even as followers of Christ, we can live and die not knowing the value of the treasure we possess in Christ. I think that's a, an important thing to think about. And I'm convinced about this. I'm convinced that our greatest need as followers of Christ is not to gain something we don't yet have. I think our greatest need as followers of Christ is to realise the treasure we do have, to know the treasure we do have, and the transforming power that happens when we grasp it, is profound. So we're going to talk about that today. Three weeks on chapter 3 of Philippians. Why, why chapter 3 of Philippians? I'll give you three reasons. First reason is because I'm a simple bloke and Philippians 3 really spells things out clearly. It gets us back to what matters most. I think we can easily miss the plot. I know I can. We can make Christianity about a lifestyle or a set of principles or a set of ideas, but it's not about these things, it's about a person. And Philippians 3 brings us back to that. The second reason is because in Philippians 3, we don't just get the truth, we get an example in the life of Paul lived out. I wonder if you've ever given your testimony. Uh, when I came to Christ, I got asked a number of times to give my testimony, the story of how I came to Christ. And, you know, the usual way to do this is you tell about before you knew Christ and then how things are different now and what you look ahead towards. And that's exactly what you get in Philippians 3. The third reason for choosing Philippians 3 is that it gets to the heart motivation for why we follow Christ. What is it? What's going to stoke the fire of our passion and fuel a life of service and love to Christ for a lifetime? Not the paper you throw on the fire that 
um, glows and burns instantly uh, for a while, but then burns out. But the log that will stay on the fire and fuel our pursuit of Christ for a lifetime. What is that motivation? What's it going to be? And we hear about that here in Philippians. We'll talk about what that is. What is it that's going to motivate you and me to gladly sharing Christ's sufferings as we sung before? This chapter tells us. So we're going to linger here in Philippians 3 for three weeks. And today, mainly, primarily on verses 7 to 11, looking at this particular idea of Christ being our treasure. So I'm going to read Philippians 3, 7 to 11 once again. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So if you're a note taker, here are three sections for this message. The first one would be where your treasure is. The second point would be the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And then the third point, the third section would be when you've found the treasure. What happens when you've found the treasure? So where your treasure is, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, and when you've found the treasure. Let's pray together and we'll look at this text more closely. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We Think about what it says in Psalm 19 about your word. It's perfect and it revives the soul. It's trustworthy, makes wise the simple. It's right and gives joy to the heart. It's radiant, gives light to the eyes. It's pure, it endures endures forever. We're warned by it. And keeping your word is great reward and it's sweeter than honey. And uh, Lord, we need your word for all of these reasons. Please transform us today by your word. Uh, that's living and active. And may we see Christ as, Lord Jesus, as you are, the the great and infinite eternal treasure uh, to pursue. We pray that we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you say you delight in most of all? What satisfies you most? What do you enjoy pursuing the most? Another way of talking about the thing that we delight in the most is our treasure, Now, when I think about this image of treasure, I think about this fairly recent movie, The Hobbit, and I think about this dwarven king Thor in his, you know, under the mountain with his just ridiculously vast caverns filled with gold, and he's obsessed with these, and he's consumed by them. His life is wrapped up in these things. Each of us holds something as a treasure in our heart. may not be a physical possession. could be all kinds of things, and it might change at different times. What are some things that people typically, or we even, hold as being precious or most treasured? Maybe loved ones, maybe uh, pursuing someone of the opposite sex, maybe lifestyle or money or reputation or football. And uh, I've realised this even more coming to the UK, how big football is. And, uh, you know, watching the World Cup recently reminded me again how passionate so many people are in the world about this game. It's a good game, but... It's amazing to me, watching the World Cup, how this is not just a game to so many, it's the life that people have that they pour into. And that's true of all of us into something. 
whether it's football or Christ or money or job or whatever it is, where would you say your treasure lies? That's a really important question. What does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what you're going to pursue. So another very important question is, is your life and your heart invested in a worthwhile treasure? Something that's eternally satisfying. Is that treasure able to bring you eternal satisfaction? What do the scriptures say about where our treasure should be? Here in verse 1, you can see where our treasure needs to be. And it says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we also read that same verse, don't we? That same command in Philippians chapter 4. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So in two chapters, he's hammering away at this same idea. What does this mean? Now, it's often the simplest commands that we get the most wrong. We often interpret this command, don't we, as saying, put on a happy face or be cheerful, be glad. Even in hard circumstances, be happy. That's not really what it's saying at all. What are we to rejoice in? We're to rejoice in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in something? It means to find your delight in it, to be satisfied in it. Not our circumstances, not rejoice in our circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. This command is telling us to find our treasure in the Lord. Why are we to find our treasure in Christ? Not because he needs our attention, but because he loves us. He wants us to be eternally satisfied. Now I'm going to quote John Calvin who said this. He said, If God contains the fullness of all good things in himself, like an inexhaustible fountain, nothing beyond him is to be sought by those who strike after the highest good and all the elements of happiness. In other words, if you're serious about pursuing your eternal joy, serious about not just pursuing uh, little, small, temporary, limited pleasures, but eternal satisfaction, if you're serious about that, what are you going to pursue? You're going to pursue Christ himself because only he can bring that satisfaction. What are the things we tend to love apart from Christ? What are those? What if we really enjoy football or food or all these other things? There's nothing wrong with many of these things at all. The issue here is what we're pursuing as our treasure. Our problem is that we shrink our lives with this enormous capacity for eternal joy into these small and temporary things. And that's the problem. We're satisfied with too little. And I really enjoy this quote from C.S. Lewis who says this, You might have heard this quote before. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer at of a vacation at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. So the problem is that we're satisfied with too little in what we pursue. We're not pursuing enough satisfaction. If we were, we would seek after the ocean, not just the drops in the bucket, and that ocean of satisfaction is Christ. We're like a little child at Christmas who gets an expensive present and casts it aside and is interested in the wrapping paper. That's what it's like with the things we pursue. And you can see at the end of the chapter, verse 18 and 19, we'll have a look at that briefly. It says this, I have often told you now, and and now tell you, even with tears, many walk as enemies 
of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. You see, a mindset that's focused on earthly things is self-destructive, and it brings misery. And it's a tragedy when people created in God's image would just give themselves to live for eternal things. A tragic waste. And the Lord calls us to something so much better. So why is it? Why is it that so often I see in my heart this propensity to pursue earthly pleasures and make them, find my treasure in these things? Why is that? I see my sin more clearly here than anywhere else. Why is it that I run after things when they, pursue, they bring me misery? Well, clearly the issue is this, is that I've forgotten the treasure that I have in Christ. So we need to know that treasure. So second point here, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I really enjoy test cricket. I've always enjoyed it. And as a child, being Australian, I wanted to wear the baggy green. My desire, my dream was to score lots of test runs for Australia. Now, my, one of my childhood heroes was Greg Chappell. I don't know if you've ever heard of Greg Chappell. He used to captain Australia. And he averaged around 53 runs an innings. And that's a really impressive average. All the greats, you know, the greats will average over 50. And uh, of the top 10 test batsmen of all time in the average in innings... Uh, none of them get above 60. You'll be pleased to know that four of those top 10 are English cricketers. And none of them get above 60 except for one. Now, I wonder, we'll put a picture up here. I wonder if you know who this guy is. You don't know who that is? Exactly. So there was a, <laughs> there was a batsman in the 30s and 40s called Don Bradman who averaged 99.9 runs and in innings. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm not boasting about an Australian cricketer. What I'm doing, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> what I'm doing is making this simple point that compared to an average of 99.9, uh, an average like Greg Chappell of 53 doesn't look all that impressive anymore, does it? It looks pretty mediocre. And the point is this, that when we, we might be impressed with some things, we might be impressed with some pursuits, but when we hold them up in comparison with what is surpassingly great, they start to look mediocre and this passage here tells us that this is the way it is with Christ. There are a lot of pursuits in this world we might find compelling and wonderful, but if we truly grasp the worth of Christ and hold these up against Christ, these things in the world, then they look very bland indeed. Have a look at verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, how does Paul's view of Christ affect the way he sees these other pursuits? He sees them as garbage or rubbish or dung, things you throw away. Now, the point is not that we're to take this kind of stoic or Buddhist idea that everything in the world is bad. What we're talking about here is where we find our treasure. And if we make these things our treasure, then they're, they're, it's, it's choosing the rubbish. It's pursuing rubbish. So much so that for Paul, former pursuits are just a waste for him, a complete waste. And you see, he calls them loss or damage. They did more harm than good. When I was a teenager, I played, I, I, I cast aside my cricket dreams for a while and poured my dreams into sporting glory and in basketball. This is the sport I played. And so I played hard and I practiced a lot and I tried to get into better teams. Now, what do I have to show for my basketball career? 
I'll tell you, every day I'm reminded of the trophies I won in basketball. I'll tell you what those trophies are. A bad back, a painful ankle, uh, two bad fingers and a broken hand. That's uh, the, the back and the ankle particularly are daily reminded to me of what that pursuit gave me. I'm drawn back to this passage here when I think about that. And for Paul, when he looks back on the things he did pursue, his righteousness coming from his performance and being the best Jew he could be, being the most religious and devoted Pharisee he could be, he looks at it all and it's rubbish to him. It's loss. It did more harm than good. And when held up against the treasure of Christ, it's worthless. And you can see here, what's the one treasure worth gaining above all others? Verse 10, that I may know him, that I may know Christ. That's the one priority that in the end matters. And compared to this, every other treasure is worthless. Wealth, success, the perfect spouse, great career, a life of entertainment, comfort, ease. We're not made for any of these things, but we're made to delight in Christ. And what's the one priority that the Lord esteems above all others? Jeremiah 9.23, great memory verse. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Now, what are you tempted to boast about? Or if you don't have it, what are you tempted to envy in others? What does the Lord say? We are to the one thing in the world truly worth boasting about. It's truly worth glorying in. It's to know God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the one thing esteemed by God, one pursuit that he highly esteems. Not just knowing about God, not just knowing a lot about the Bible, but knowing, knowing him. We're talking about a relationship, a personal kind of knowing. Now, a couple other verses in Philippians 3 speak of this same idea. Have a look at verse 3. It says, for we boast or we glory in Christ Jesus. It's the same idea. He's our treasure. We glory in him. He's the thing we value most. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is it about the resurrection that's so exciting? What is it that's most exciting about our hope of Christ's return? Is it access into a perfect place? Is it what is it that makes heaven so glorious? Is it a perfect creation? Is it uh, all the favourite things that we enjoy? Beautiful scenery and friendships and cashew nuts or whatever it is that we enjoy the most. What is it that we're going to look forward to the most? We eagerly await a saviour from there. It's this person, Jesus Christ, this one being of infinite beauty and joy and glory that we'll share in. I think about the... Um, the Narnia stories and the voyage of the dawn treader at the end and Lucy standing before Aslan and Aslan tells her that she's not going to come back into Narnia and she's really sad and upset and she says to Aslan, it's, it's, it isn't Narnia, you know, said Lucy, sob Lucy, it's you, we shan't meet you there and how can we live never meeting you? It's Christ that we hope for, being with him, knowing him, enjoying him, sharing in his glory forever. John Piper asked this really helpful question. Listen to this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, 
and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? It's a really good question to ask ourselves and to test our hearts and what we value most. In the end, the, the end of the quest is not stuff. It's not any pursuit in this world. All of that is a rip-off. Pouring our lives into that is a bad deal. Nothing compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And I enjoy this uh, quote from John Flavel, English pastor, 1671. He said, Let me tell you, the whole world is not a theatre large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or unfold half of the unsearchable riches that lie in him. What shall I say of Christ? His excelling glory dazzles all comprehension, swallows up all expression when we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that has excellence or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him. Alas, we have done nothing when all is done. So Christ calls us to this same pursuit. And he died to make that possible for us, that we might enjoy his glory forever. Now, last point here, when you found the treasure, what happens when we grasp the treasure we have in Christ? Well, as you know, we recently moved here from Australia. And in that move, we got rid of an amazing lot of stuff. And if you'd seen us do this, you might have wondered why we were doing it, just almost seemingly recklessly getting rid of things that we own. And so we got rid of all kinds of things, couches, refrigerator, bread maker, lawnmower, beds, just gave them away. Why did we do this? Was it charity? It wasn't charity. It was because we had a different priority. I even had to part with my motorbike. And so why did we do these things? Now, you would consider it really foolish if there was no reason, but there was a really good reason we were doing it because we wanted to get rid of that stuff so we could move here. And so it makes no sense. It's obvious. It makes no sense to throw things away for no purpose. But if there's a really good reason, then we might get rid of things. Now, we see that in this passage. Have a look at verse 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And it, it might seem to us here that Paul's being reckless. Why, Paul, are you losing everything? Why would you even say that you want to share in his sufferings? Why does he say in, in chapter 1, verse 29, that it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ to not only believe on him, but also to suffer for him? Why does he say these things? And to the world, that just seems like insanity throwing it all away, an utterly foolish waste. Why would you throw it all away? And it might seem to us sometimes like Paul is on this spiritual plane far above us. And he's you know, up in the heights and we're here in the lowlands and we, we can't attain to that. But you know, I don't think in Paul's mind he's doing anything particularly super spiritual or n- noble. He's just making a simple decision about profit and loss, about what's worth more. We're familiar with decisions like this. We make them every day. Am I going to, is it worth investing in this thing? Or is it worth, the, this, is this fitness regime worth it? Or is this course of study that I'm thinking about, is it worth it? Or is it worth buying this engagement ring? We think about all these questions. 
all the time. And Paul is doing this, simply holding two things up against each other and making a rational decision. I wonder how, if you've noticed, how strikingly similar this, these verses are to a, a couple of short parables Jesus told in Matthew 13. We'll just have a look at these and notice similar language of loss and gain. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, 44 to 46, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, Jesus' message here is the very same, that to gain him is so valuable that it's worth parting with everything else. It's an attitude that makes perfect sense. What's the attitude of the worker in the field? Does he reluctantly part with what he has? What's his attitude, does it say in verse 44 or verse 45? Verse 44, he says, in his joy, not out of duty, he doesn't sell these things reluctantly, but in his joy, he gladly goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Now, here's a really important, talked about motivation before, here's a really important principle in the Christian life, that Christ calls us to come and share in his eternal joy. So when he gives us a command, when he calls us to take up our cross, when he calls us to die to ourselves, when he calls us to wash other people's feet or to persevere under trial or whatever it is that's difficult, that seems difficult that he calls us to, we can remember this, that his command is an invitation to us to share in greater joy. You know when I first realised that? When I first realised that idea that every command of Jesus was an invitation for me to have greater joy, totally transformed my understanding of the Christian life. The teaching I had heard before that was more about, you should do this because it's right. Jesus calls you, commands you to do this, to obey. That's your duty to do it. That's not the language Jesus uses. He doesn't woo us and win us with fear or duty. He wins us with a promise of joy. So how does the Lord call us to follow him? He calls us to follow him in joy. Now, everything then becomes a privilege. Listen to David Livingstone, that well-known missionary Scotsman who left home and comforts in Scotland to reach the unreached millions in Africa. I don't necessarily approve of his leaving his wife and kids, like a lot of missionaries did, but his example here of his attitude in departing with things is, is really challenging and helpful. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word, in the word, the word sacrifice in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice, say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing, a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this be only for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory that shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Here's the motivation to pursue Christ for a lifetime. It's not duty. It's not fear, it's joy, love for Christ. Now, you might object to what I'm saying. You might think the motivation should be love. We can talk about that later. I would say they're both joy and love are intricately linked. They're married together very closely. 
we can discuss that later if you want to. But how might, just ask yourself this, how might your own motivation in the Christian life be changed by thinking about this? By thinking about every command as an opportunity to feast on greater joy. How would it change the way you come to the Scriptures if Christ is the surpassingly great treasure to pursue? How how might it change your prayer life? Why we want to pray? How might it change your interactions with people? How might it change the way you use your time? So again, in closing, we come back to this one main idea. What is it we need most? Is it to try harder or do better or be more like Paul? I'm pretty convinced it's that what we need is to grasp the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Then we won't need to be told to share our faith more or to read the scriptures more or to try harder or whatever else. It'll be the very thing we love to do. Now, I encourage you over this next week to read the book of Philippians. Um, we'll be looking next week more closely at another reason why Jesus is the greatest treasure. We'll be looking at pursuing him as our righteousness But let's pray now and ask the Lord to do this in us, to uh, let us see the surpassing greatness of knowing him. Lord, we, we hear your voice in Isaiah 55. You say, come, all you are thirsty. Come to the waters. Come and buy and wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what is not satisfying come and hear me and that your soul may live and your your soul may delight in the richest of foods Lord, this is the way you call us you call us to share in your eternal joy lord forgive us for shrinking our eternal capacities for joy into small and temporary things forgive us for forgetting so easily the glory and the joy found in you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would remind us once again. May our eyes be opened, even as uh, that prayer in Ephesians 1 prays. Our eyes be opened to grasp uh, the riches that are in you, the eternal inheritance we have in Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that. We pray for that spiritual understanding to grasp how, how great a treasure you are. Help us to press on, not out of duty, not out of fear of consequences if we don't but as your children knowing you love us and call us into greater joy may we trust you and throw ourselves into what you command us that we might enjoy and share in your eternal glory in christ we pray in his name amen